Welcome back to the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast and to this November 2021 conference podcast special from the COECT. I'm Serena Gay and I do podcast production for the team. If you missed this wonderful Solihull gathering of parents and professionals from the world of fostering and adoption, well, there's no need to despair because we'll be bringing you three special conference podcasts of which this is the first. You can also access recordings of live speeches and discussions from the COECT website. So this year's conference, which was billed as your roadmap of strategies through to sanity, there really were laughter and tears. There were moments that were so raw and moving, and other moments of spontaneous joy and hilarity, as you might expect. First up was Sarah Nash, CEO, and Sarah Dillon, Director of Therapeutic Services, who talked at the start of the day about clouds of grief, guilt and anxiety. Why do such clouds occur particularly for therapeutic parents? Sarah Nash. Therapeutic parents have guilt and anxiety, which is interchangeable. And grief happens, obviously, for a number of reasons. It might be because you don't have the child that you thought you were going to have. It might be because you are misjudged by people and you feel like you have a loss of self. So there's many things that affect us as therapeutic parents, which can really help us to feel very, very anxious and feel guilt because we feel like we're not maybe doing things well enough and we should have done things better. You had a very sort of vivid description of what you called the grief swamp. Mm. What does that look like exactly? We use the term the grief swamp because that's about being stuck. Because when you have overwhelm and you have very high levels of grief, then it can be like Groundhog Day and you can really feel like every day you're not getting any further forward. So uh, we talk about overwhelm, the overwhelming feelings of grief and the feelings of stuckness and depression and, and how you get out of that grief swamp. You talked about the difference between compassion fatigue and depression. Mm. So Mm. what shape does that take? It's very interesting. When we are working with parents who are in compassion fatigue, we can tell the difference between that and depression. And often social workers will decide that a family or a parent is depressed. But actually, the way that we know the difference is because if they are motivated and happy about an aspect of their lives, then it's more likely to be compassion fatigue. If they are unhappy and flat about every aspect of their life, then it's more likely that that's depression. You also talked about the hopelessness that can come about. What would be the trigger factors for that? Often it's unrelenting behaviour. So you might feel, for example, that you've just managed to resolve something and then unfortunately that behaviour comes up again and you feel like you're back at square one and it can make you feel really hopeless. Or, as I mentioned, you know, my uh, friend's children that were similar ages were all growing up and achieving things and going off to university whilst I was working really hard to keep my children out of the courts and on the straight and narrow. So we had a whole different experience and and very, very hard work as well. Anger forms part of this grief swamp. How is that? Basically, anger is a protective mechanism. So when we're sad, that can often come out as anger because as therapeutic parents, you have to keep going. You just have to keep trying to do what you need to do. And if you stop and think, oh, I'm really sad then that can be really overwhelming and can stop you in your tracks. So instead of which, what we find is a lot of parents, they could have this kind of simmering rage when they're like angry, I can't believe this is happening. But actually the root cause of that is sadness. 
So you presented a whole slew of strategies, and I'm not going to make you sit here now and tell me them because I'm going to get that out of the other, Sarah. But you did talk in a really interesting way about how tech control mm. can help us control our anxiety. I think that we live in a, a, a place now where people are controlled by their phones and there's all these notifications pinging left, right and centre. Well, if you have a child from trauma and you have the school phoning you and emails popping in every five minutes. You do end up feeling like you've got to keep checking every single message, every single thing that comes in. And of course, every time you get an email ping or anything like that, it gives you a cortisol spike. So your cortisol goes up and it can be really difficult to then get your cortisol back down again. So it's about managing your notifications so that you look at them. So I would look at them, for example, when I'm sitting down with a cup of tea and I've cleared the backlog of my work. So I've got time to look at and go, okay, now what's happened? And like I say, if I leave it a couple of hours, quite often it sorted itself out anyway, and I don't need to rush in and save everybody. To end, what are the, your sort of golden four C's recommendations that you give people? Well, we cheat a little bit here because obviously, you know, we've got cake, which is really good to help you feel nurtured and warm inside. And it gives you that little cortisol burst to, to help you. We have chocolate. And uh, again, as Sarah was saying, it helps to raise the dopamine levels. And coffee, I mean, coffee's great because obviously you've got some caffeine, it can keep you going. So a bit of coffee and a bit of cake goes quite a long way. But actually, my fourth seat isn't a seat, it's wine. Because so, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes we've just got to resort to that. Wine might be a strategy for some, coffee and cake for others. And Sarah Dillon explained in more detail for me the coping methods both the Sarahs recommend. So the first thing really is to acknowledge that looking after children from trauma is going to have a big impact on you. Sitting down and thinking about the fact that you're living with what I call a trauma tornado in your home and working out how that's going to impact on your own emotional well-being. So much of that is about depersonalising it, is realising that although you're feeling this way, it is because of what you're living with, opposed to it being the children's fault, or indeed that you might be a failure. So recognising it, acknowledging it, and depersonalising it is very much the first step. You focused on being reasonable, how important that is. Sometimes we can overreact to a situation. Is our reaction a reasonable reaction to what's happening? If it's an unreasonable reaction, then I think you need to be thinking, do I need some support here? Am I looking at symptoms of compassion fatigue? Has it triggered something in my own attachment history? You know, is there a behavioural trigger that's stuck in my brain here, which will cause you to overreact? And, and that, unfortunately, can escalate the child as well. Is it disproportionate? You talked about naming the feeling. Oh, yes, absolutely. Emotion is, is energy in motion. It can be like, a, a, you know, a rush within us and it needs a story hanging on it. So when we're able to say, I feel this way because of, and sometimes someone helps us to say, I think you might be feeling this way because of, and creates a story to hang on that emotion, we actually release neurotransmitters in our brain that calm us down. So when we name it, we tame it. And, and really, it's a therapeutic parenting strategy that we're using on ourselves or someone else is helping us with. Talk to me about the rewind catastrophic thinking <laughs> strategy. What is that? Okay, something I'm still working on, Serena, I have to be honest with you. Uh, but yes, it's where we are allowing a thought to, uh, if you like, to cascade into a catastrophe. 
And it's to come back to the original problem, such as my child's been excluded from school. That's the original issue. And we, and we stick with that and we think, okay, what does that really mean? So we rewind to the beginning of where we started the catastrophic thinking and re-examine that thought process and think, is there something different that we could do here? Does it have to become that catastrophe? And what about the essential maintenance aspects of all this? You talked about much more than bath bombs and mindfulness. Yes. So in the system, people who are helping parents to care for children from trauma, we talk a lot about self-care. But actually, this is far more than self-care. And I use the analogy of, of you know, cleaning my car, so I'm caring for it. But actually, if I don't put you know, the necessary fuel in it and the oil and stuff, and it's not going to go very far. So what we talk about is essential maintenance opposed to self-care because it isn't optional. It's not an add-on. We don't want it to be a reaction to something, but we want it for something that parents already consider every day. How am I going to take care of myself today? And that's essential maintenance. And part of that is about regular brain breaks, which might just be a cup of tea with a friend who not that keen on parenting, (laughs) going to the garden centres because there's a lot of oxygen that's very good for our brains. It could just be going in the garden and talking to the plants. Having dogs can be very helpful as well. Sometimes it is about having a few days away from the children. But ultimately, it is a non-negotiable part of parenting children from trauma is essential maintenance. You also talked about empathic listening and the importance of that what is empathic listening and why is it so important so we need somebody to be able to listen to us in an empathic way to connect with us when we're in a dark place we do not need somebody who is going to offer us sympathy at least at least we need somebody who's going to sit there with us and join us in that dark place and say wow I can't begin to imagine how this is for you tell me Tell me what's happening. We know that empathy frees the brain. Empathy is like first aid for the soul. And it really helps parents to feel heard and understood. It's not about problem solving. Because when a parent is in that place, they can't hear the strategies and solutions. So that part of the brain isn't engaged. So we are. it's like a soothing balm of, I'm here, I'm with you, I hear you, I get you. And then when the parent starts to feel that, it re-engages the front part of their brain and they're able to access their executive functioning and indeed their strategies and solutions. That is so, so interesting and it's actually a strategy that we should all be applying to all of the people that we know with problems. Because doesn't it come naturally that you want to supply a solution immediately when a problem is expressed to you? But in fact, that's not the thing to do. The thing to do is to listen kindly, quietly and empathetically. Yes. So it is a problem-solving system that we work within. And actually, we really need to be able to empathise before we can ever begin to redirect. I say connect and redirect. Connect with where the person is at And then we can redirect them to the strategies and solutions they may need. Now, it's not always possible to record perfect audio at an event like this. So apologies for the odd and sometimes strange noises off. But I don't think they really detract from the value of what my podcast interviewees had to say to me. This couldn't be more true of my next guest, Glynis Hoff, 
The moving testimony she provided both on stage and later to me was very much aligned with the earlier talk from the two Sarahs about clouds of grief, guilt and anxiety. Glynis's talk was called When Your Best Isn't Good Enough. Now, Glynis is a familiar figure in the National Association of Therapeutic Parenting. She's been there since its inception, and she gave a deeply moving and personal presentation at the conference. It took enormous guts to talk publicly about her foster daughter's decision to walk away from Glynis and family for good. So why did Glynis think it was important to speak openly about it? So some children cannot live in a family. Well, obviously, we've talked about my child who is extremely violent. Very, very violent. I think I was giving people permission and understanding that, unfortunately, sometimes your best just isn't good enough. No matter how hard you try, you are still not able to support that child because their mental health is at such a state that they're not open to um, your support. Are you willing to give us some background on why you were the person who was up there? The reason why I was up there is because seven months, five days, well, six days now, because it's four o'clock, our foster daughter ran away. And leading up to that, she had asked to move schools. She really desperately wanted to move schools. And because for two years... We weren't able to make that happen because I'm a foster parent as opposed to an adoptive parent. So I had no legal right and no um, parental responsibility. So therefore I had to wait for the local authority to act or to find somewhere for them. They did try, but nowhere seemed to be suitable. So because I asked my daughter to speak to the local authority herself direct. She did this and spoke to them and said she needed to move school, that she wanted to move school because that was why she was so unhappy. It took a lot of courage from her point of view because she had to stand up against the school and do it. You know, the school heard it. So it took a lot of courage and nothing happened. So then I became the person... That was at fault because I had told her to voice her words and action would be taken. So then she objectified me. I became a thing, an it, a nobody. And I was her loving mum and had been from the day she arrived. And so, yes, she just came to, I, I don't want to say hate me, but she lost trust. She lost trust and she told me I was a liar. And this, in addition to that, I understand there was, well, violence. Violence. There was daily violence, either physical violence or we had verbal violence all the time. But there was physical violence. And it became, it snuck up on me because uh, I'd had done the Managing Violent course. We had calmed everything down. One, backtracking, I'm sorry, but once COVID had, uh, the lockdown, the first lockdown had finished and they insisted she go back to school, she became destabilised. She didn't feel safe. She didn't want to go back to school. And uh, her behaviour showed that. 
she just kept lashing out and lashing out. Not always at me, but generally everything was directed towards me. We have a foster son and she did hit him on occasions. And our our unborn grandchild, she threatened to harm my, my daughter and the unborn grandchild. And this is where the rest of the family became frightened. My eldest son in particular took me aside um, one night and he said, Mum, I am really scared for your safety. He said, I see the way she looks at you and I'm frightened she's going to stab you. He said, I know she stands outside your bedroom at night. He said, and what if you go asleep? What's she going to do to you? And she did, in fact, stab you at some point, I understand. Yes, but it, I know I'm minimising it. It, it. You know, it, that sounds really horrific. It, it wasn't a bad stab, but it was a stab nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you talked on stage about the stages, or, or emotional stages, that any parent goes through after their child that they've invested so much in and remain so attached to after their child takes a decision to leave. Can you just talk us through what those stages are again? First of all was absolute complete grief. The shock, the shock of it is just horrendous. I, yeah, it's, it's like a death has happened but you have no closure on it. You've no closure because the child walks and you don't see them again. So in all that time, I haven't seen her. I've spoken to her via Facebook. So it's it's that grief. And then it's you. once you kind of get over the grief, well, you don't get over the grief, but once you go move to the next stage, it's kind of, oh, well, it's, it's calm. Um, I can go to sleep at night. Um, we can sit in the lounge without worrying about what's going to happen. We can all be a family together. Uh, nobody needs to worry we're safe and and that's what it you know it's that feeling of relief and then comes with that you feel ashamed for feeling relieved and really ashamed shockingly ashamed what about other people's reactions to you do you know, Serena, I didn't let on to anybody. I told uh, my work colleagues, I'm very much the type of person I keep things in and I throw myself into work. N- most people here at this conference today don't know that that happened, so today will have been the first day that they will know. Other people's reactions, school weren't very pleasant towards me. Um, and some of the social workers weren't either. The IRO, Independent Reviewing <laughs> Officer, has really been wonderful. She's been very caring and, and very, very good, has contacted me. My daughter's social worker has really struggled because my daughter's transferred her feelings that she had from me onto the social worker, so the social worker is really struggling. So it, it's very mixed emotions. My family, oh, thank God that's finished. That, that and that that hurt because it's your child and and you love your child beyond anything my husband he he was really relieved because he was worried you know his you know feelings is he should be looking after me he should be keeping me safe and he said i wasn't keeping you safe i i just wasn't keeping you safe and the same with my my 30 year old son he felt the same way and of course, my uh, daughter, who was about to have her baby, um, also terrified. But we all loved this child as well. So it, it was so, so, so hard. 
How long was it before you knew that your daughter was now safe after she left the home? To be honest, I, she left the home and nobody could find her for 24 hours. Right? And so we knew after 24 hours that actually she was safe in that there were other people around her. Being actually safe safe has only happened in the, since October because she's been in several different homes since because it didn't work out. Um, she's done extreme self-harm. I mean extreme, it's horrendous. So from that point of view, she's safe in that they're managing her and I am told that her mind is safer. But I really don't know because she asked me four weeks ago, could I unretire? Um, because immediately we retired because I couldn't cope with it anymore because I knew they would never let her back with us anyway. So we retired because I, I couldn't have another child. When you mean retire, you mean retire from the business of, of, fostering. of fostering? Yeah. So we retired and let her know that as a result of retiring, it wasn't because of her, it's because we have retired. So she asked me to unretire and I explained that couldn't happen. And I said, it, it would be lovely, darling, but even if I did unretire, the local authority wouldn't place you back with me. And she's now not talking to me again. And I'm just hoping she's safe and I'm hoping she hasn't done anything that is unsafe and damaging for her. Thank you to Glynis for that insight into her own difficult experience with her foster daughter. In next week's part two of our conference podcast special, we'll be hearing about kinship and special guardian issues from Jane Mitchell and Ian Fogg, and about the challenges of homeschooling, as well as the difficulties schools themselves are facing in doing their best for children from traumatised backgrounds. And in the meantime, if you want to access the COECT for more information, go to the website www.coect.co.uk. Bye for now. Hold up. 